Hey, welcome to the 97th episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And this week, I bring in Grace Rayner, the Clemson beat writer for The Athletic. And this is a fun one for me, because I don't care about Clemson, I don't care about college football, I don't really care about college basketball, and I never read Grace's work before until someone suggested her. And then, bam, I start going through her work. That's freaking great. She writes with flair, with detail, but she also possesses a very uncommon level of empathy and understanding without being a homer. It's kind of hard to explain in an introduction, but I think you'll get it right now on Two Writers, Sling Yang. Okay, Grace. First of all, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I just want to say, I have this thing I do often with this podcast. I try, I always try to find the oldest clip I can find uh, involving the person. And regrettably, you're quite young, so old doesn't mean that much. Here's what I found on you, Grace. The year was 2007. It was October 3rd. And you, um, I'm proud of you because you, you were playing number six singles for the Asheville School. And you defeated, <laughs> you, you put down Ashley Hornowski of Carolina Day, 6061. Your team lost. Wow. That must have been. You really kicked Hornowski's ass. And I just want to get the record. <laughs> that is so fun. I was like, where is he going with this? In I'm like doing the math. Like 2007, I was definitely not a journalist. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Seriously, thank you so much for doing this. You actually, it's kind of interesting. I hate college football, right? Which, which is no indictment of you. I pay almost no attention to college football. And every now and then I put out feelers and I'll say, who should I have on this podcast? Someone's like, you need to have Grace Raynor. I started digging through your clips on The Athletic and the stuff just freaking jumps off the page. Like you make a sport I don't find interesting, very interesting. And I think that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> that's yeah. so nice. So you, uh, I want to, I asked you before we started, I said, I really like digging deep, 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 deep into stories. And you had a piece that ran February 25th, 2019. It was called A Visit with the Second Most Famous Person in Trevor Lawrence's Hometown. And this is Cartersville, Georgia. And the lead to your story, which I'll read real quick, is um, the lunch hour is buzzing at the Burger King off Church Street. And while the store manager in the back is serving guest number 81, a bacon cheese Whopper meal, Trevor Lawrence's biggest fan has a bright blue soap bucket in one hand and a dish rag in the other. It's a dreary day in the hometown of Clemson's superstar quarterback this February afternoon. The Lawrence's number one super fan doesn't mind. As the scent of hot onion rings and french fries permeates the building, Edgar Moore has on a Carterville High hoodie with black slacks, a Carterville hat, and a boy's grin so permanent that customers can't help but hug him on their way out. He's been working at the Burger King right across the street from the high school, his alma mater, for 29 years. I love it here. He grins as he gets a fresh bucket of water for the seats. I love the spicy chicken and the Big King XL. But he's most known for his connection to Cartersville which includes his love for the Clemson quarterback. Um, and this guy, he's 49 years old, or he's 30 years older uh, than Trevor Lawrence. It's a really fascinating, interesting, not the kind of story one normally writes story. Um, to start from the beginning, how did you even find out about this? Yeah, so when I was still working at the Post and Courier, probably last July, I went down to Cartersville. This was Obviously, Trevor came in with all this hype, and so I went down to do a hometown story to 
sort of see where this kid comes from and, and who raised him and that kind of stuff. And while I was there, I was at this local lunch counter and everyone was talking about this guy, Edgar. And Edgar is like this local town legend um, in, in Cartersville. And he's been the manager for the football team for, you know, more than three decades. And he's just a total legend. And so I remember thinking, okay, at some point I need to come back and meet this guy and do a whole story on him because I felt like for as much as I had heard about him, he wasn't really just a footnote in Trevor's story. He was sort of worthy of his own story, just as probably the second most famous person in that whole town. And so um, as soon as I started with the athletic, I thought, you know what, this is the off season. This might be a good time to go back, meet Edgar, do a whole thing on him. Um, and he was awesome. He was exactly what exactly what I had in mind and, and exactly what I was hoping he would be is, is totally what he was. I would say like one of the mistakes I made a lot when I was a younger writer is I would go into stories with expectations and then make sure the stories fulfill the expectations. Meaning I would have an idea what the story is going to be. And even if the story kind of deviate deviated from that idea, I think I tended to push it in that direction because I went in with a preconceived notion. Did you go in thinking this is what the story is going to be? And then did the story wind up being what you thought it was going to be? Or did it sort of deviate from your expectations at all? Yeah, I've definitely struggled with that a lot before with that exact thing. You think it's going to be one thing and then maybe it's not. And then you don't want to force it. Um, with this one, I knew that I knew going in that this guy is 30 years older than Trevor Lawrence. He has special needs. He has been a staple in this town for three decades. And this is kind of his story. So I knew sort of going in what I was working with in terms of this is his personality and this is why he's connected to Trevor. And I knew that I wanted to start at Burger King. I like that was probably my my biggest request um, with all the people who I set this up with was, can I go watch him work at Burger King for his lunch shift? Because I just felt like that would be the place where I would get to see him do his thing and sort of get to know him the best. But this was one of those where I didn't know totally after we left that Burger King, I had no idea where it was going to go. And after we left the Burger King, he it's right across from Trevor's high school. He walk, he, he hops in my car. I drive him over to the high school and he just walks into the high school, knocks on a teacher's door and just busts the door down basically. And all the kids are so pumped to see him. I mean, he just has total free reign of this high school. And at that point, I was like, okay, I think I know where this is going to go in terms of just how popular he is. And I had had the Burger King scene. Um, but yeah, other than that, I just knew he was a cool dude with an awesome personality. I didn't know how much he was going to give me, but he was amazing. I don't know how he knew it was me when I first walked in, but he gave me a huge hug as soon as I walked into Burger King. And at wow. that point, I was like, all right, we're going to be okay here. Is it, what was it, um, what was the interview like? How much could you get from him? What was talking to him like? So he, we talked a little bit as he worked, um, like he would just be scrubbing down the seats and I would ask him, so how long have you been the football manager? And, or he would be going back to, you know, the back counter to get some new soap. And I would say, okay, tell me about why you're really good friends with Trevor. And, um, he was just so much of him was he didn't have to say a lot to, pack a, a punch you know you could just kind of see in his body language how just excited he was to even be talking about Trevor and um, he's he's verbal and, and very easy to communicate with um, but with him yeah it, body language more than anything helped me sort of understand him in a way that that maybe a verbal conversation 
uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have carried as big of an impact as seeing how excited he was. I'll tell you what really hooked me early on. You said the lunch hour is buzzing at the Burger King off Church Street. And while I was the store managers in the back serving guest number 81, a bacon cheese Whopper meal. You could have just served, said the managers in the back working or the managers in the back making a sandwich. But guest number 81, a bacon cheese Whopper meal to me is money times a thousand and, you know, <laughs> that he has a bright blue soap bucket in one hand and a dish rag in the other. Not to ask, you don't have to describe his hands or his hands are busy. Like the specifics, the specifics, the specifics. Are you, are you consciously thinking like when you hear guest number 81, are you thinking, okay, I got to get that guest number 81. You just write it down and later on. You're like, Oh, guest number 81. That's kind of important. Yeah. So when I go into these things and do you know Tim Crothers from SI? I have Tim Crothers stories for you. I know he was your professor at UNC. True story. I started Sports Illustrated and I worked my way up and I got put on the, uh, they used to have a column called Inside Baseball. And the only reason I became the Inside Baseball columnist is because Tim Crothers no longer wanted to do it. So my trajectory <laughs> as a baseball writer is entirely because Tim Crothers no longer wanted to do the baseball column. Wow. He's a, and, oh my and he's gosh. a great writer. Great writer. I feel like taking his class at UNC um, just taught me the, like, like you said, the power of the details. And I was listening to your podcast last week with Dan Wetzel when you were talking about, don't just say the car, say like the beige Toyota Camry or whatever it is. Um, and so when I go into these things, especially a story that I know is going to be very visual, which I knew with Edgar, it was going to be a very visual story. I just take notes like a maniac. And then if I don't use them, I don't use them. Um, but I, I would rather have more details and more to choose from than less. I mean, I probably actually had maybe five guest orders, but just the bacon whopper, whatever it was, was the least complicated. <laughs> like guest number 12 ordered something ridiculous that I was like, okay, this is way too complicated. Um, I feel like Tim is fully responsible for teaching me how to report more with my senses than just people's words, if that makes any sense. So are you, um, when you're, when you're in the Burger King, do you have a tape recorder and a notepad? Just a notepad? Like, what are you doing? Um, at that point, let's see. I had, I know I had a notepad. My notepad was filling up very, very quickly with, I don't know that, I think I had my tape recorder, but I think that I, did, I didn't use it every single time I talked to Edgar because I wanted him to feel comfortable and I didn't want him to feel like, oh my gosh, who is this stranger who just, rolled in here and all of a sudden has this recorder in my face while I'm cleaning these seats down. Um, so I, I made sure that I recorded him when we sat down at the Burger King, when his shift was over. Um, but a lot of, a lot of times, um, I just kind of followed him around this Burger King. We went from table to table that he cleaned and then he went and filled up the drink machine with ice and I followed him there and we just kind of talked. And, um, from there, I, I just took notes on my, on my notepad for that part. This is going to sound like a criticism, but it's not really a criticism. It's an observation. So don't hate me. There's only one quote in the story from Trevor Lawrence. And it's, he's been yes. there forever, Lawrence said last season. And we all love him. So here's the one thing I will say. Like, um, everyone has written these. You did the story exceptionally well, to be clear. Like, really, really good. I think okay. everyone in journalism, after they've been around a number of years, has done, I mean, you know, some variation of the story about the hometown and the guy at hometown. You know, it's kind of Gary Smith's famous radio story. And I always think, like, I really do. I always think, does Trevor Lawrence really give a crap about this guy? Is this the hometown guy who works at Burger King? And Trevor's like, hey, it's good to see you. All right, let's go, guys. You know, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know I, know, what I, mean? I like, see what That's you're what I was kind of wondering. Does he actually care about this? 
I think yes, because I called Trevor's mom and that's cause I, I had that same thing. I, I didn't want to force something. Uh, you know, that, I think that's like one of the biggest fears that you have as a writer, right? Like you're forcing something that's not there. Um, but when I called Trevor's mom and we talked for probably 20 minutes, I could just tell the impact that this guy has had on her son and their family. And Trevor sees him every time he goes home and, Edgar has come to a couple of Clemson football games and seen Trevor. And so I don't think it's a situation where do they talk every day? No, but every single time Trevor goes home, does he make a point to see Edgar? Yes. And when, when Edgar's at these Clemson games, are they, you know, spending some time together? Definitely. And so, um, I remember I talked to Trevor, I actually talked to Trevor about Edgar several months ago before I even ever went down there just thinking, you know, maybe at some point I'm going to do this story. Uh, but I think that he is, in fact, when I was at Burger King, someone asked me if this was a story similar to radio and Edgar was even joking around, like they should have done that movie on me. You know, he, he thinks <laughs> he, thinks he should have been the script. <laughs> so I think that his impact has been long enough and powerful enough to where, yeah, I do think that Trevor cares about him. Did you try, did Trevor choose not to talk? Like, I don't know how it works dealing with college athletes anymore. I haven't done it in a long time. Like, do you try reaching out? Do you try going through the Clemson, whatever, sports information department to get more from him or no? So when I asked him about it, I think it was earlier. It was definitely in season last time. And getting them, getting a hold of them um, in the off season is much harder, especially now, obviously, with Trevor Lawrence. I mean, every magazine cover in the universe wants to talk to him. And so at that point, I knew I wanted to run the story the first day I started with The Athletic, which was two days before spring practice started. And so um, I, I sort of knew at that point getting Trevor on the phone was probably not in the cards when we were about to get him 48 hours later. And so that's why I relied on the quote that he had given me earlier. And then that's why one of the main reasons why I called his mom. Cause I was like, all right, we need a Lawrence family member here to speak on this guy and their relationship with their family. I found a quote from you from uh, 2017. You were interviewed for the national sports media association. You're the 2017 South Carolina Sports Writer of the Year, and they, they interviewed you, and they asked you, um, what advice would you give to someone starting in the sports media industry? And you said, uh, the biggest piece of advice I would give to someone starting in the industry is to not be afraid to start somewhere small and work your way up. Obviously, sports journalism is changing so much, and I think we all have the natural tendency to want to shoot up to the top and cover the biggest beat as fast as possible. But there's a ton of value in covering high schools or doing general assignment role first. There's nothing more important than finding a mentor who's going to push you and nurture you and foster your talent or make you a better reporter and or have you prepared once you, you cover the big teams. And I got to say, as a 46-year-old guy who started his career at the Nashville Tennessean, doing cops, doing preps, I was thrilled to read that. Like, thrilled to read that. Oh, yay! Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Two days ago, I got an email from someone who I know not that well. And she's like is there any way you can help my son get an internship? He's a college freshman and he really wants to intern for either the Knicks, the Nets, Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA. Ooh, I my life. I'm like, you got to slow your roll here. Like he's a freshman in college. Get an internship at the local minor league baseball team for the summer. You know what I mean? Or the small town newspaper. And I just think, tell me why. Cause you, you are of age. I mean, you're 20 something years younger than me. Like it does seem like now there's a much greater expectation I'm going to start at MLB.com or I'm going to start at the Washington Post, blah, blah, blah. Why is that? I don't know. I think that's a really good question that I don't really know that I have a good answer to. I think that obviously now we live in a world of 
instant gratification and now, now, now. And, um, I do realize that there, I, I fully realize that someone could say, well, that's easy for her to say. She's, you know, going to be covering Clemson for her third season this year at 26. Um, but I just think that, I don't know, I, I had some smaller internships, and before I covered Clemson, I did I did some high school. I covered sailing in Charleston, which was a very bizarre experience. Um, I just think there's so much value in that, and I think that we, as people living in 2019, just get so uh, mesmerized by big, you know, name brands, big, sexy jobs, and I don't know. I think it can be, I think it can work for some people and everyone's path is obviously different, but I'm, I'm very grateful that my path started out smaller before I took over a larger beat. Well, you interned at the Fayetteville Observer, correct? Correct. Then you had two years in MLB.com, correct? Correct. I'm on a roll here. Then you, uh, (laughs) three years in Charleston, correct? Oh yes. Correct. Yes. (laughs) So when you're sitting there in Charleston, and you're covering sailing. And I don't know, you know, like I probably grew up reading whatever, New York Times, Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, I don't know, whatever, ESPN.com. Are you, are you happy? Like, are you content at 23 or whatever it is at a, at a, I don't know what it's even called, a regatta, you know, covering? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And I know that that might sound a little weird or like, there's no way she's telling the truth. But yes, I mean, I remember when I started at the Post and Courier, I was uh, 22, 23. And I had said I had made a, a mental goal. And in retrospect, I wish I maybe had not done this because I don't, I don't know that I should have tried to plan my life out like this. But I remember saying by the time I turned 26, I would like to be on a beat. And at that point I was 22, 23. And, um, yeah, I mean, I would go to these regattas and was it what I wanted my life purpose to be? No. Uh, but I loved, I loved getting to take risks with smaller stories that, you know, I could maybe be a little more risky creatively, or I covered a ton of minor league baseball, which was really good for me when I was there. And yeah, I was just kind of living in my own little bubble. I loved covering high school football on Friday nights. And so, yeah, I was not in any rush or hurry to, oh my goodness, I need to leave this and move up when the, when the Clemson opportunity presented itself, of course I was really excited about it. And I was like, yes, I definitely want to do this, but by no means was I searching. Like I got to get out of sailing. I was just kind of living the life in Charleston, you know, growing and, and trying to become a more consistent, detailed reporter. Well, what do you think you get? So what do you get? You're at, I'm looking at your Charleston, uh, your, your, your time at the post and courier and some of the headlines, <laughs> Charleston River Dog, Connor Spencer goes from Carnegie Hall to Riley Park. And, you know, um, life in America, how three Charleston River Dogs are helping the Korean teammate adjust. And that, these are my favorites because these are what they call them. One new high score to compete in sailing national championship beginning today. <laughs> On Saturday morning, 19 high school sailing teams from all across the country will wake up in their respective hotel rooms and drive to the College of Charleston Sailing Center. Um, what do you get out of doing those stories? Like, what, what do you feel like? Now, looking back three years, those stories do for your career or for your writing? If anything, I think that they give me a sense of appreciation. And they, at the time, gave me a sense of, you know, I, like I said, I felt, I don't know if humbled was the right word, but 
I had just come from finishing an internship covering the Yankees. And so in a six month period, I went from Joe Girardi's press conferences to a 17 year old sailor, you know? Um, and I think, I think it was good for me. I think it was good for my ego. I think it was good for expectations. And so, and then I think it, it teaches you too. Now, when I go to a press box covering Clemson, like I will, uh, today's Friday and then tomorrow for the spring game, I will have an entire box score. I will have live stats. I will have TV reviews. I mean, I just think that, and I know a ton of people who cover high school say this, it just forces you so much to, you don't have live stats. You don't have an SID. You don't have bios that tell you nuggets of information on these people. Like you really got to dig and you really got to figure out what the heck am I going to write about? I've never met this 17 year old boy in my life. And I think that that really helped me just in terms of asking good questions, making myself relatable. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're still kind of strangers to these people. How can I get them to trust me? And so I think that was really good for me when I did go on the Clemson beat. Okay. Now I'm telling feature stories about, bigger names, but how am I going to use those same tactics to get them to open up to me? I just want to say uh, about three years ago, I live in Southern California and I hadn't covered preps in 20 years. And I called the Orange County Register sports editor. And I said, I would really love to cover a high school football game just for, just for fun, just to do it. And the guy's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I would just love to do it. He's like, all right, what game do you want to go to? And I was like, I could care less. I don't care. I just want to do it. He goes, well, there's this game and whatever, Laguna Beach, but the teams are terrible. I was like, no, great, I'll do it. And I'm sitting there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. And I'm sitting there in the bleachers. I'll tell you two things about it. I'm sitting there in the bleachers, and I, I took my son. He sat next to me, and I was happy, and it was great. And at one point, I turned to someone who worked there, and I said, who, who has the stats? And the, guy, <laughs> the guy's, like, laughing. At, he's like, what are you talking about? Like, you have the stats. Like, no, who has the stats? And then, uh, <laughs> And then I wrote this article and it was like this horrible, like artsy, like <laughs> lead about the quarterback and, you know, the, the, the decisions that every quarterback must make as he drops back in the pot. And like, it got posted <laughs> on some sports journalist uh, message board and people were like, here's the worst, worst high school sports story. <laughs> because people don't want that crap. You know, like nobody wants it. People are not opening whatever, the Orange County Register or, you know, whatever paper to read your artsy take. They want to know what happened in the game. And I feel like I actually forgot the important lesson of covering preps. Yes, totally. I totally did that too. I all like, I felt like I, I can't tell you how many high school football games I probably overwrote and the editors were probably like, what is she doing? You know, I mean, right. and that's another thing you have to remember too is like, and I always, I always struggled with this is that when you're covering a high school game, you're right. Like the whole purpose of it is people want to know the news. They were not there. They need to see the score and what happened. Whereas college now I feel like I can be a little more creative because they saw it on TV or Twitter or what, whatever. But that's really, really funny. I've definitely done the exact same thing probably it's multiple almost, times. It's almost like you have to remind yourself, nobody's here for you. Like <laughs> Nobody's reading this for your byline. They just want to know what happened in the freaking Laguna Beach high school football game. That's it. Totally. I'm sure I did that at the student newspaper too with some, you know, whatever volleyball story or what have you. But yeah, that's really funny. I'm glad I'm not the only person that's done that. Yeah, you're far from alone. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter Casey, who recently went with me to see the film Us. So what'd you think? It was pretty good. 
but I think it could have been scarier. Really? Actually, I have an idea for Jordan Peele's next horror film. I've got a working title, 503. What happens? Okay, so there's a guy, and he wants to buy a home Michigan Panthers jersey from 503 Sports. So he goes to 503-sports.com, the place where you've got to visit to find the best throwback sports merchandise. But when he gets to the website, guess what? There's a homicidal lunatic with a chainsaw and blood dripping from his teeth? Better. They only have visitor jerseys. And? That's about it. Scary, right? Seriously, don't drop out of school. You wrote a you wrote a piece that came out March 20th. The spring syllabus for Clemson's Hunter Renfro includes wedded bliss and an NFL draft list. It's a really good story. And uh, yeah, your lead is uh, it's 6:47 on a Tuesday in March. See, this is what I love. I'm being serious. You could have said 6:40. You could have said Tuesday evening. Like it's 6:47 p.m. on a Tuesday in March. I love that shit so much. I can't even tell. You. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> and it, like, did you look at your watch or you're kind of guesstimating as you wrote it later on? Uh, I think I wrote, I think I wrote down what time I walked in. Cause I was supposed to, I, I got there at six 45. That's when we planned on. And then by the time we had said hello, the dog, you know, I greeted the dog and then we sat down. It was like six 47. Yeah, it's great. It's six 47 PM on a Tuesday in March. And as he nestles into his living room for the night, a barefoot Hunter Renfro sinks into his couch and starts to order some sushi. He does not want cucumber inside of his shrimp tempura or avocado. He's not particularly fond of either. But he does want seaweed. Something his fiance, Camilla Martin, jokingly reminds him is already a staple of sushi in most cases as the bond that holds the rice together. Oh, good, he laughs. And he does want a side order of fried rice with extra white sauce if possible. Camilla laughs at the pickiness. It's the little moments like these they seem to enjoy the most. Uh, in less than a month from now, the high school sweethearts from Myrtle Beach are set to be married. And this Tuesday night, they are about to watch a DVR of The Bachelor alongside Golden Retriever Deuce. Again, the name of the dog, important. And Black Lab Camper, two energetic dogs they share. Uh, it's actually interesting. Someone, uh, a professor, a friend of mine, actually wrote a book recently about reporting, and the title of her book is "Always Get the Name of the Dog." Oh my gosh, I have to read this. Which That's is true, hundred awesome. percent true. Yeah, always get the time, always get the name of the dog. How did you find yourself having sushi with Hunter Renfro and his <laughs> uh, and his fiance? How'd that come about? So right after, well, not right after, but when Clemson won in, I guess, twenty sixteen season, and Hunter caught the pass. Um, I wanted to do a story that off season heading into fall camp about just what has his life been like these past six months? How has it changed? Et cetera, et cetera. And it was bananas. I mean, he would go to the grocery store to buy dog food and, you know, would sign 10 autographs. And so I, at that time, I think I reached out to Clemson's SID and he had said, you know what? Hunter's Hunter's really cool. I trust you. Here's his phone number. You guys set something up yourself. And I ended up going to Hunter Renfro's family vacation in North Carolina where there were a hundred different Renfro's. And I spent a day at the beach with them and wrote this story. And that was sort of the foundation for my relationship with Hunter. Like I feel, I feel like that was a really important moment for me in terms of, I got to see him away from the football field. We got to sort of go behind the scenes and then, he could also, I feel like after that story came out, like we had a, a really good trust and a, a really good professional rapport. And so I knew I wanted to do something on him heading into the NFL draft. And at that time I had met his girlfriend at the time, now his fiance, soon to be wife. And so um, I really just texted him after Clemson's season ended and said, Hey, I would love to do this. I'm switching jobs. I think this would be a fun first story. 
Um, I hit up his fiance who I have a good relationship with now too. And they were like, cool, uh, let's do it. And they were really chill and they were like, look, he has been super busy and we just like quiet nights at home. Do you want to come over? I was like, yes, perfect. I mean, that was visually such a, such an awesome thing, even better than, you know, maybe dinner in downtown Greenville or something. So I just had a previous relationship with him that I was ready to cash in on again. And he was super gracious with his time. And so was she. Let's say you go to, uh, you go to Henner's house. You go to Hunter's house for sushi, and he's just kind of an asshole, right? <laughs> I'm actually being serious. He tra- he's kind of a jerk to Camilla. He's, I don't know. He's a gross eater. He's kind of foul. Maybe he makes a racially incentive comment. I have no idea, right? Let's say, this is something. Um, what do you do? That's a great question. I don't know. Um, Hunter, luckily, is the exact opposite of that. Like, he's so nice and super awesome and very chill. I mean, like, I walked in and he gave me a hug and his dog jumped on me. I was like, yes. Um, I I think the first thing I would do would probably be to call an editor and just say, hey, here's what happened. I need some help with this and walk me, you know, can you walk me through how you think we should approach this? But I don't know. What would you do? I mean, I, um, I think you have to determine what's what. Like, let's say he was watching TV. And let's just say hypothetically, you're all watching The Bachelor, and there's an African American guy in The Bachelor, and he uses the N word, or he calls some guy some gay slur, right? Hypothetically, I think I probably use it, but if he's just a jerk because he's in a bad mood and he's not really feeling being interviewed, uh, I let it go. I think it depends on the severity of what is going on there. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. But it's interesting because you're in a weird position, right? Because you cover Clemson, you're going to have to deal with these people. They probably all love this guy. Circumstance actually makes it a really, uh, for you, would make it a much more difficult situation, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's one of the top three most beloved figures in Clemson football history now. I mean, everyone loves to root for a walk-on, and everyone loved him already, and then he caught that pass. And, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, people will tell their, their kids about Hunter Renfro one day. So, yeah, that's. I don't know what I would have done. I'm just, I'm glad that he's not like that at all. He was awesome. <laughs> Let me ask you. I, so I mentioned early on, not a fan of college football. And I want to tell you why. And I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. Well, I look at a school like Clemson or Alabama or whatever. And I see, I mean, it's cliche, right? The coach is making tons and tons of money. The university is making tons and tons of money. A lot of these players wind up not graduating. A lot do. A lot don't. Um, a lot of times there are minorities from low income areas who are not can't possibly be sort of academically prepared for for what is a full time job as well as a full time schedule. When they come from schools that are underfunded, they end up leaving. I mean, the number of guys I've sort of met through the years who maybe they get a year or two in the NFL, maybe they don't. They're sort of battered down physically, mentally. They end up working at Home Depot. Nothing anything's wrong with being at Home Depot, but they're working at Home Depot with a, with an orange apron and their greatest day, whether which they're always reminded of, came when they were 21 years old and they caught that pass against Alabama. And they're forever haunted by that ghost. Meanwhile, they don't have a degree. They're left sort of on the side of the road by the university that loved them when they were physically prominent. And their life kind of sucks. And I feel like I've told that story so many times that it's hard for me to get juiced by big-time college football. <laughs> this Hallmark movie was brought to you by... All right, so uh, what uh, wrong, right? I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I, for as long as I can remember, have been like, my whole life has been college basketball fandom. And I, I love, I grew up in North Carolina and even now, you know, you see all the mess going on with that and you can't help but be 
soured on it, you know? Um, yeah, I, I like covering college sports because I feel like before it becomes their actual job where they're paid, there's still some passion left in there. Not to say that pro athletes don't have passion, but I do feel like there's, especially with a guy like Hunter Renfro, who was a walk-on, there's a, there's a sense of gratitude to be there. I don't know if that's the right word, but a sense of excitement before it becomes, okay, this is my professional business every single day. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we've seen obviously even how the athletes themselves have reacted to this NCAA commercial and how that has sort of portrayed their lives. And yeah, I could, I could see why people might not be into college sports. As a writer for the athletic, what do you look Because the athletic, obviously it's a, it's a sort of different kind of animal. They're not expecting you to be day by day by day. This guy, you know, tore a ligament. What are the expectations for your Clemson coverage at the athletic? I just try to do something different. You know, I think one of the, one of, if not the best parts about working for the athletic is you, you don't have to feel that pressure to pump something out every day. And so you can have two or three days to write something really, really good and really powerful, go dive super deep. And so I just, as my own personal preference, I like writing features better. That's just sort of been what I've always enjoyed doing more than the day-to-day stuff. So that works well with the athletics model. But I think that the expectation is just that it's well-researched. It's well-written. It's um, hopefully different. It goes beyond the box score a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I, I love their model and, and what it allows us all to do because I think that some really good stuff has come out of it. Can you, can you, you know, it's funny. I had Dana O'Neill on this podcast, uh, the athletic college basketball writer about maybe a year ago. And she had just come from ESPN. And I said, uh, cause I was doing columns for the athletic. And I said, one of the things I've, I've been encountering is you call people and say you're from the athletic. And they're like, Oh, what is that? And now it's been a year. And I wonder, does everyone know what the athletic is now when you approach people? I think it still varies. I mean, there are times when people will say, well, what's the athletic? And I'll explain it to them. And then there are other times where people are like, oh, my goodness, you work for the athletic? Wow, that is so amazing. I mean, I went, I live in a very small town in North Carolina. And uh, my dad was at, like, the local snack bar for lunch and ran into one of my high school classmates and told him what I was doing. And he was like, she works in the athletic. Uh, like, That's crazy. <laughs> and so, um, I still think it's, I, I guess it's still sort of a varying response, but I've gotten both. I've had to explain it to some people. And then I've also gotten, Whoa, that's so awesome. I have not dealt with a sort of quote unquote, big time college coach in a long time. And when I did in the past, when I used to interview coaches, I think when I was a younger writer, I was intimidated by it to a certain degree, sort of the grandness I mean, for me, it was, it was major league baseball managers, but a, a Joe Torrey or a, I don't even know, a Terry Francona, guys who sort of seem to me larger than life. You obviously have one of the sort of more famous head coaches in college football. Do you need to form a relationship with the head coach? Does the head coach need to know your work? How does it sort of work? Yeah, I think so. Um, this will be my third season on the Clemson beat. And so I feel like now Dabo and I do have a relationship and he sort of knows who I am and who I write for and, and what I, I think a lot of times coaches can tell what your style is and, and what you're trying to accomplish just by the questions you ask. I mean, I think that that's more important than sometimes we realize is that they probably understand where you're going with things based on your tone and also what you're, what you're asking. Um, obviously I think that having a relationship with the players is probably first and foremost, at least in, in my mind, just because these are the guys that the fans care about and these are the guys that the fans want to know about. And 
these are the guys that you really need to trust. But yeah, I think, I think that covering a major college football program, especially one like Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, all these playoff contenders that have a ton of national media there at any given moment. Um, I think it's important as a local reporter to have that relationship as well. Do you get, um, do you get hyper competitive? Like you're covering Clemson, you know, day by day. Uh, Clemson gets whoever's coming to town. ESPN's coming to town. Uh, I don't know. Bleach Report, SI, these guys, they're coming to town. They're on your turf. They want to write about you, team you cover. Your needles go up. Are you the helpful journalist who's like, oh, let me tell you about so-and-so? Or are you the, this is my turf. You're going to have to work on it on your own. Um, probably somewhere in the middle, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I've always, I always try to, so whenever I think, whenever I brainstorm, okay, here's what I'm going to write this week, next week, here's my plan. I always try to think of this, like, I try to think like a national writer. And I try to think, all right, let me come up with a story that, would make them mad if they saw that I got instead of them. And I know, I don't know if that's like a good way of going about it, but um, I always try to maybe be as much of one step ahead as I can, just because I'm there all the time, you know? And so, but yeah, no, I don't think I would ever like, I don't ever want to sabotage anyone. I've definitely helped people. It is kind of weird sometimes seeing so many people on your beat, but I think also Clemson players, understand that like when we're at the college football playoff i feel like all of a sudden clemson players are super excited to see a local media face whereas during the regular season it's just another part of their monday you know but then they look up and they see us there at the playoff and they feel more comfortable so yeah i don't know i, I try to stay like as down the middle and then i try to control what i can control as much as possible and worry about me instead of worrying about everyone else around me one of my first, first guests on this podcast was a baseball writer named Susan Slusser. Uh, she's out in California. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she used to cover her first beat was the Orlando Magic when Shaq was on the Magic. And she said during the playoffs, during the finals, he, he would always say, where are my local reporters? And he'd always look out. He'd always make sure they got what they needed. And, and, and I think she felt like he almost viewed her and the other writers, the local Orlando writers, as... Uh, comfortable and familiar and kind of, sure. all right, these are my people. You, you feel that way too, to a certain degree. Oh, totally. I mean, when, when Clemson won, won Dabo's first national championship, I guess two years ago, three years ago, whenever it was, um, he even in his press conference had said, I think, I think one of the local reporters asked him a question and he gave the answer. And then he even said, by the way, I want to thank the local media. Y'all are there every day. Y'all are the, I think he said some people are sometimes zers, but y'all are all the time zers or however he worded it. Um, but yeah, yeah, he, I mean, he even publicly in front of the whole world acknowledged that. So yeah, I think that there's a level of comfort there for sure. You, uh, you interned at MLB.com and you said you covered the Yankees for a summer during your internship. And I think it's a really fascinating thing. You're, you're, you're a kid from the South. You went to University of North Carolina at the time. You probably whatever, 2021, 20, you're thrown into the freaking by far the most competitive beat I've ever, I've ever been a part of or ever witnessed is, is the New York Yankees with all the, you know, everything New York, good experience, bad experience, overwhelming experience. Amazing experience. Yeah. I went into it thinking, I, my dad and I joke about this now. I went into it thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do with the actual Yankees part of it and, and that environment, but I think I'm going to love New York. And then it sort of was the, like New York overwhelmed me more than the Yankees did. Um, just like the lifestyle overwhelmed me way more. But yeah, that was a cool, because my year 
was um, 2015. So A-Rod had just come back. And so that was like kind of an insane year too from that standpoint, just seeing, oh my gosh, like there are a gazillion people. And but that's the cool thing about the MLB.com internship. I feel like, I mean, I wrote every single day and the, the days that Brian Hoke was off on, you know, had, had a day off, the, the team was yours, the beat was yours. And so, yeah, that was a really cool experience. And then just also from like, I really enjoy people watching and I feel like a Yankees clubhouse is an awesome place to do that. Were you not nervous walking into the Yankee clubhouse at first? Oh, I was so nervous. Um, so nervous. I think, I think my nerves were maybe a little bit eased by the fact that I didn't grow up a big baseball fan and I definitely didn't grow up a Yankees fan. And so while there was that moment of, wow, A-Rod is 10 feet away from me, I, I, I didn't really have that, oh my goodness, I'm so starstruck. Like these are my heroes because I didn't really care that much about Major League Baseball as a kid. So that helped. But yeah, walking in the first day and it was like really quiet and everyone was at their, at their locker. Um, I was super nervous, but there were also a couple of, at the time the Yankees had um, a couple of UNC grads. Andrew Miller was on that team. Adam Warren was on that team. And they, I told them I went to UNC and I felt like they always sort of looked out for me and, you know, we had a sort of unspoken connection in that regard that also eased some nerves. I feel like you learned early on that there's no worse place in America than the Major League Baseball Clubhouse to be a journalist trying to get something. Oh, my gosh. It was. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen that much media in my life. I mean, maybe yeah. at the college football playoff. Um, but, yeah, this would be like a, you know, I mean, you know what it's like. It'd be like a random Wednesday. And there's the, it feels like all of New York City is there. And it's also kind of embarrassing because the players don't want you there. They all hide in a side room. So it's like the Yankee locker room, clubhouse, and it's 40 reporters and maybe the backup catcher, a relief pitcher, and some guy on the injured list. And that's it. And you're all waiting for A-Rod. Yeah, it's super annoying. Yeah, I remember it just being so awkward, too, that sometimes we would obviously be waiting on a certain player, and then there's obviously TVs in the clubhouse, and so... We would all be watching TV and the players would all be watching the same TV, but we would like not be talking to each other about it. And it was just this awkward. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like waiting on that one person that you need. I'm going to throw a final question at you. And I wasn't even going to ask you about this, but I feel like you're a good person to talk to generationally, career-wise. Um, a couple of days ago on Twitter, where every now and then I, I do something stupid, right? There's a writer for Sports Illustrated, a very good writer named Charlotte Wilder. And she tweeted out, she was watching the Red Sox play. She's a Red Sox fan. And she wrote in all caps, Mitch Moreland's my man. And, you know, she tweeted, come on, Sox, give me that first Grand Slam of the year, baby. And I wrote how when I was coming up, and it all, you can't write when I was coming up and not sound like an old douchebag. So it it's always <laughs> never works out well. It never works out well. Well, it was basically like when I was coming up, you couldn't be a writer and sit there rooting for teams, right? You had to set it aside. You couldn't, you just couldn't do it. It was not a thing where I could be a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and also be an announced Detroit Lions fan or whatever fan. Here we are, 2019. Am I just an antiquated piece of crap? <laughs> no, I'm being serious, though. Like, am I just outdated and not with the times and I need to accept the fact that nowadays it's okay for writers to root for teams and let fans know that they root for it? Like, is that is that just fine now? And I'm just kind of 20 years past my prime. I think we're sort of in that weird gray area because I think that there's still very much a sector of writers that are not fans. And then now we have, I mean, Twitter has become so many people's brands now and we have, 
the emergence of the internet and, you know, I don't know. I think that's a good question. I am trying to think about what, like how I approach it. I mean, the only sport that I legitimately care about are North Carolina sports. And I try to taper that as much as I can because I cover an ACC team. UNC is in the ACC. Like it's still probably too close for, for comfort. Um, I don't know. Maybe if I was like a diehard Lakers fan, I don't, I don't know. I just, I've never grown up a pro sports fan, so I'm not sure how I would really address that. But I think that we're still in the, in the gray area. I think a lot of people who came from newspapers um, have had that sort of ingrained into them. And I obviously did come from a newspaper and our student newspaper was super adamant about that. They were like, do not embarrass us. Do not be a fan. The Daily Tar was very good about that because they didn't want to be in a situation where we were the laughing stock in the press room. But yeah, I think pro sports are different. And then I think online are different. Like I love Charlotte. I think that her brand is hilarious. And I think that that's a large part of who she is. And it really resonates with people. And But I think it just kind of depends on who you ask. When you're covering a Clemson, North Carolina game, do you care? Not really, no. I mean, and especially Clemson and North Carolina, they're obviously their strengths are completely opposite. So I can pretty much take, take to the bank, like Clemson football will destroy North Carolina this year when they go to Chapel Hill. And I don't really care at that point. I mean, I'm usually just having, covering a team in prime time as many times as Clemson was for a newspaper for the past two years. I was usually just stressed out trying to hit that five minute deadline more than anything. Right. I didn't even have time to have any emotions. That truly is a point I make over and over again which is you can cover sports and set any loyalties aside. It's not hard to cover a Clemson, North Carolina game, be a North Carolina grad and not care who wins the game. I'm probably a little selfish. I root for whatever is going to be the best story, not stress me out like a yeah. madman on deadline. <laughs> My boyfriend always jokes that he always, he always sends me a text anytime Clemson goes into overtime, like, I'm sorry. Like, good luck, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> I just, I just root for whatever's going to make my story better and my life a little easier. Well, Grace, I, uh, thank you so much. Seriously. Thank you so much for doing this. And, um, I, your stuff is great. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. I got to do this. I felt so honored when you asked me because I listened to the podcast and there's so many of my favorite writers on there. And I'm like, whoa, oh, cool. this is awesome. And now, as always, my closing thoughts in from the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. So if you listened to last week's episode of this podcast, you heard Jeff Legwald talk about a lead I wrote that he still uh, discussed with people over the years. And I do too, and I thought I would talk real quick about it. It was uh, 1995, and I was a writer at the Tennessean, and I screwed up so often that my editors took me off the features section and moved me to the cops beat. And the assignment was cover police, cover crime, uh, straight facts, don't try to be fancy, don't try to be snazzy, just learn to get the facts right because I kept making mistakes over and over and over again. It was like an addiction. So I sat there with a police scanner and I did my due diligence. And one day I got a uh, call from the Nashville Police asking if I wanted to do a prostitution sting. And I said, yeah, great. And basically it was one of the most amazing assignments of my life. I, it was at a, a rundown motel in Nashville and there was an undercover female officer posing as a hooker. Uh, there were police inside the room, and we were across the way in a surveillance vehicle with a, with a video screen watching it all transpire. And a couple hours in, the, one of the police officers said, do you want to go in the room with the cops? And I was like, yes. And if you're a reporter and you're ever given that kind of opportunity, you take it. 
And I went in and we waited and you heard the female officer kind of leading a potential client in. Come on, baby, come on in. And they opened the door and boom, we all jump out. And I remember uh, this guy sitting there frozen in shock on the bed. They take his license, they put it on the bed and um, they open his wallet and it's a picture of his, uh, his wife and kids. And he, was, uh, he wanted to pay 40 bucks for oral sex. So I went back and I wrote the story and I really debated the lead. I mean, I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. On the one hand, played straight, facts, 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 don't get fancy, who, what, where, when, how, and why. And on the other hand, you know, it's a prostitution sting. So I wrote my story and I handed it in. And my editor was a guy named Ted Power, like a pros pro, a really good editor. And I'm watching him edit my story and I just see him put his hand, his head in his hands and shake his head. Because the lead I wrote was, all John Smith wanted was a blowjob. And it never made the paper. And that's... From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. I want to thank today's guest, Grace Rayner, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Grace on Twitter at GM Rayner, R-A-Y-N-O-R, and read her work at The Athletic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and reviews are truly, 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 truly appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. Relate. The fight is infinite, it's forever here to